Welcome to the Faith Bridge Sermons Podcast. Today's sermon features Bible teacher Steve Carter. It was recorded on Sunday, August 7th, 2022. And hey, if you're ever in the area, join us on Sunday on campus at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. and come say hey in person. You can also follow us on Instagram at at FaithBridge to see what goes on during the week. And as always, you can join us every Sunday for FaithBridge Live at faithbridge.org slash live. Here's Steve. Well, good morning, everyone. How y'all doing? Yes, if we've not met, my name is Steve Carter. If you're watching online or the community service, we are grateful that you are here. Um, if, if you don't have a Bible, I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward. We've been walking through this series all through the book and, and life of Jesus, this book of Luke, and I absolutely love it. Um, but I, I just love coming to FaithBridge. Um, it's, it's amazing. You all are amazing. Uh, one of my former middle school students from Grand Rapids, Michigan, he goes here. I was, after last service, uh, saw someone who just moved out to spring from Willamette, Oregon. I got to know him at the church that he used to be a part of. He's here. Um, and then last night, I fly in from Chicago O'Hare, and that's its own um, problem, but I, I, I'm hungry, right? I'm hungry. I'm, I'm out near the woodlands, and so I decided to go to this restaurant. I'm sitting at this bar by myself, just eating, and, and, and like, uh, I, I, I like am just hearing old Pearl Jam, uh, if, you, if you're a fan of Pearl Jam, you know, and, and it's like corduroy off the Vitology album, and, and I'm just eating, but it's like, it's, it's a little off because the speaker is blown. And, and again, you, it's hard to understand Eddie's voice anyway. It's like, you know, like, you know, you, know, you can't really hear, but now it's even more mumbled. And I'm like, man, a speaker. And, and it's like, there's just this, this dissonance. A guy beside me, like, looks at me and he's like, bro, that speaker's blown. So he's like, should I tell the bartender? I'm like, I don't care. Like, you, you do you, bro. And so he, he tells the bartender, the bartender's like, has no, no concept. No idea. No, like, it's like he tuned that thing out a long time ago. It's almost like when you walk into a gym and you turn the lights on, there's this like, it like, he, he had totally forgotten about it. It was so uncomfortable. So I'm sitting there in this moment, like, hearing Eddie, blown speaker, this guy's arguing with the bartender, and then I hear my name, Steve Carter. And I was like, I'm in trouble. I'm always think I'm in trouble. And I look back, and, and it's, it's Stephen and Taylor who were on a date night from Faithbridge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. First time I met them. They were awesome. And um, I said, I'm going to give you a shout-out tomorrow, because way to go for being on a date night. And then I went back to finishing my message. If you have not gotten a Bible, feel free to raise your hand. The ushers will give that to you. But I, I kept thinking about this the whole time. I leave the restaurant. I'm walking back, and I'm like, man, isn't this fascinating? We are living in times of profound dissonance. It's like in the 50s, there was this phrase called cognitive dissonance that was brought to the forefront by some incredible therapists. And that concept was around cognitive dissonance is when your beliefs and values get challenged. Or another kind of definition of it is when you have a certain belief or value or ethic that you profess, but somehow in your actual everyday life, you are not embodying that. And this creates a sense of dissonance. And in 2020, we experience cognitive dissonance 
Because we watch values that we thought were so important be challenged. Values from the scriptures that just became so, so important to us that were threatened. You had all of these moments where inside of us, we were like, this doesn't feel okay. I'm not sure what to do. And for many of us, we just chose an escape. And what's incredible, though, is you have to understand that this whole book is about how humanity interacts with the divine and how the divine longs to interact with us. This whole book is a book of cognitive dissonance because you have a perfect God and you have a broken humanity. This whole book, I mean, let's, let's just get to the story of Jonah. Jonah Jonah's in this amazing prophet and he's been asked to go to Nineveh, a city of 120,000 people, and to preach the gospel. And he's like, I don't want to do it. It's like if you're an Aggie fan and the Lord calls you, I need you to go to Austin. Walk to midfield. You will be handed a microphone. I want you just to preach the gospel. And Jonah, like we know, he runs away. He finally ends up going. And he delivers the most boring gospel message of all time. For God so loved the world. He just preaches this message, inviting people to repent. Doesn't want to because he can't stand the people that he's actually speaking to. And what ends up happening? The greatest Billy Graham crusade ever. All of the city falls, tear their clothes they end up repenting. They're like, we'll do anything to be right with Yahweh. I mean, can you imagine if like you went to Longhorn Nation and to all the burnt orange and you were like, okay. I mean, it's not, you're not going to go to TCU because they got Christian in their name. You're not, you're not going to go to Chip and Joe land in Waco because Magnolia already has Jesus. But you're going to go to Longhorn Nation and even though you're getting a Manning, like, but you go there and you, and you just got up and you were like, in the middle of the stadium, you preached and every one of them said yes. And what's amazing is you get to Jonah 4.1. This is literally what the Bible says. Jonah 4.1. To Jonah, it seemed wrong. So he became angry. It seemed wrong that people said yes to God and God relented and showed grace. It seemed wrong. It seemed so wrong to Jonah. And what's amazing in Hebrew, the word is gadal yara. Let me hear you say gadal yara. It literally means this, to be exceedingly displeased. Any of you just get on Facebook and you find yourself just gadal yara? Any of you just find yourself turning on the news and you're like gadal yara? And if you just like look at the state of our world, you're like, gadal, yara. And there's just this moment of like, ah, oh, it's cognitive dissonance, which is why this book is so important. Because if we don't have a place that can teach us and shape us and form us into how to actually be the people of Jesus, we're all going to go our own ways. And my whole goal, anytime I preach, is to help you live a more cruciform kind of life. A life that is shaped and formed by the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. 
a kind of life that actually embodies what we see Jesus teach about. And friends, I'm telling you that this passage that we're about to look at today, I've never preached on, but it is fraught with cognitive dissonance. And there's a great Lithuanian rabbi, not a follower of Jesus, but what he says is so profound. He says, to be somebody's rabbi, you must have been given permission to disrupt them. So, whether you've given me permission or not, I'm here to disrupt you. Some of you are like, well, I'm a a Texas fan. I already can't stand you. (laughs) But here's the deal. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 12. We're going to dive in. And I, I, I love the scriptures. I love the teachings of Jesus. Uh, it's, it's amazing is if you, if you actually go through all four of the Gospels and you watch the way that Jesus teaches and you count up the amount of questions he asks, he asks 307 questions. He's asked 187 questions in all of the four Gospels. And you know how many he answers actually directly? Three. (laughs) This is amazing. Just like you ask Jesus a question, he's like, "Ah, let me tell you a story. It's like talking to my grandpa. You know what I mean? (laughs) Well, 1932. And I'm like, no, I'm just asking about the economy. Okay. This is what Jesus would do though. He's always just trying to take you into a bigger question. But what he was doing with these stories was trying to understand what is your real motivation? What's your real desire? What are you really wanting? And for many of us, that's the cognitive dissonance that we find ourselves not knowing what to do with the disruption. And so many of us just want safe and clean and nice. And then we meet Jesus and he's like wild and free and deep with with God. And and, and it's tough. There's a cognitive dissonance in there. So look at what it says, verse 11. When you are brought, I love it, because it's basically saying you will be if you are a follower of me. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, so like the power structures of the day, when you are brought before them, do not worry how you will defend yourselves or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. I mean, it's so amazing. And Jesus is just like, hey, when you, as you embody my teachings, are brought before your boss or brought before Twitter and Facebook or brought before your friends at school, whenever you are brought before the power systems of the day, don't try to defend yourself. Wait on the Holy Spirit. Because he will give you the words to say. So this is the passage that is going to frame this parable. Because Jesus is saying, man, you don't have to defend yourself. Just you got to learn to wait on the spirit. And this is what Jesus modeled. But what's so amazing is, any of you have that cousin Eddie in your family? You know what I mean? Like, you say something... And then they randomly just say something in a question that's totally off topic. I had a buddy of mine, uh, he's sharing in college about how his girlfriend broke up with him. Uh, welcome to college, because that happens. And, uh, and, and he's going through and he's like, he's vulnerable. He's not this guy. He's vulnerable. Our other sweet mate, Sam's like, hey, guys, random. Um, 
what do you guys know about laundry chutes? We're like, what? Like this is a dude's laying out his heart and you're asking about a laundry chute? This is what Sam would do all the time, just couldn't sit well in tension. And so he would just ask the most random question. So Jesus has just laid this out. Whenever the power systems, the structures, synagogues, rulers, authorities bring charges against you, don't try and defend yourself, but wait upon the Holy Spirit. He'll tell you what to say. And look what it says. Verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. It's just the most like random like, Okay, like why is Jesus supposed to respond to that? Look what he says. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in abundance of possessions. Powerful phrase right there. And then verse 16, he told them this parable. So he's like, I'm not gonna do what you tell me to say. I'm not gonna look at your brother and be like, hey, share the money. I'm gonna tell a parable. I'm gonna tell a story. I'm gonna make you all live in the cognitive dissonance because I want you to feel and understand. And anytime a parable was told, the real question you had to ask is, who am I in this story? Who am I in this story? Now, as I read this parable, I want you to look kind of for all of the isms, you know, and that's ism is just I, self, me, or myself. We do this all the time. It becomes about me or mine or I or this. Just look at how this character that Jesus is telling a story about centers himself and his possessions and his stuff. Look what it says. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then you will get what you have prepared for yourself. And then Jesus just drops this, verse 21. This is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. So it doesn't answer the question, creates a whole new set of questions. What does it mean to be rich toward God? And this isn't a message about should the guy have built a bigger barn or not. This is not about the stuff. This is about the motivation that the man actually believes it's all his and it wasn't a gift to be stewarded. And friends, this phrase, rich towards God, I haven't been able to get out of my mind. Because I think this is, this is, when I look at the gospel, the good news, what is actually good news is that God took his very best and gave it to us. And yet there's something in our culture that says, no, 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 just, just hoard, just hold. You did this work. You, you made this happen. This is why sometimes the gospel is so tricky for high-powered CEOs and business leaders because they've worked for everything that they've accomplished. They've climbed ladders, made big deals. Everything that they've done, they can see on some spreadsheet or some efficiency map or strategy session, and then someone comes and goes, yeah, yeah, it doesn't matter, it's all about grace. And they're like, I don't know how to work for that. You're like, exactly, all you do is receive it. 
and it feels so profoundly foreign to them. But it's mine. It's what I did. It's what I built. It's what I made happen. And friends, I need you to understand that if we're going to live this cruciform life, a life that's shaped by the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, we have to learn how to be rich toward God. But I first want to start with the three threats. Three threats to being rich toward God. Number one, greed. Greed. And I'll tell you this, we don't talk about greed enough. And I, I believe, and, and, and somebody can come at me with this, but I believe that greed is at the heart of racism. I, I, I live in Chicago now. Oftentimes I've been coming, I've been coming from Arizona. I lived in Chicago for a number of years. I study where I live. I want to know about the city managers. I want to know about the city planning. I want to understand how a city became what it became. And you turn on the news, you've probably heard about Chicago. It's still the third largest city. It's unbelievable, but, but, but there's some parts of that city that are more violent than places that we could ever dare to imagine. So the question is how? How did it get that way? You know what's fascinating? Is that if you study it, there were all of these massive towers, the projects that we, many people would use to, to say, but these towers housed a gang. And you kind of born and, and lived in this tower, maybe you were part of this gang. And there was 20-some towers all throughout the city. But many of those towers were housed on land that people wanted. So a number of people signed enough signatures because they wanted that land and they knocked those towers down to build up multi-million dollar condos. Caprini Greens, you've heard of that. That's what happened. But here's the problem. I'm not saying you can't build condos. Here's the problem. What they did was they pushed all of those people to the south side of Chicago. So you had a gang that was contained. You had police officers around that. They understood. They were every, Would sin happen? Yeah. But it was protected. And all of a sudden, because people wanted that land, they desired that land, they felt like they deserved it, they demanded it, they took it, they moved all of these gangs so now they weren't contained on a street or a tower. They lived next door to each other. And then the city thought, well, you know what we should do? We should close down the elementary schools in this area so now an eight-year-old has to walk past 12 different gangs just to catch the L which is the train to get to the next stop for the school that's now three miles away and all of a sudden you look at that and you go it all began with greed it's hard to be rich towards God when you're like I desire that I deserve it I demand it because what you think is it's mine. And we as Christ followers have to, have to just sit with that cognitive dissonance and hear the Holy Spirit begin to go, is this the right decision for me and my family? Is this the right decision if I want to actually with my one and only life bring honor and glory to God? The second, the second threat to being rich toward God, in my opinion, is envy. Envy. We don't talk enough about envy. But envy, the book of Proverbs says, will rot your bones. That's fun. You literally have no spine. You have no structure. Envy's fascinating because envy has a cousin and it's called covet. And covet's when, oh man, you see that new truck and you're like, I want my neighbor's truck. 
We feel that. You just get on Instagram. All Instagram is is coveting 101. I want their vacation. I want their life. I want that. And oftentimes, the other cousin that we often think of for envy is the word jealousy. But jealousy is different. Biblical jealousy is fascinating. The way that we use the word jealousy isn't usually biblical because biblical jealousy is this. You can only be jealous for what belongs to you. My wife can be jealous for my time. I can be well jealous for my wife's time because we belong to each other. I can't be jealous for my neighbor's stuff. I can covet it, but I'm not jealous to it because he doesn't belong to me. That's different. But envy, envy is even darker and scarier because envy is all predicated on the theory of limited good. Because this is what was thought of during the days of Jesus, that there was only so much good to go around. And somehow, if you experience favor or blessing financially or a marriage or with kids or with crops, the thought was the goodness dropped on you. So you know what would happen? Is people would walk through the city and they would give you what was known as the evil eye. If you have a two-year-old, it's called the stink eye. And they just look at you like, it's mad doggy, right? And when they're doing this, what they're doing is they're actually saying negative things to you. I hope you fall. I hope you, your life falls apart. I hope you get canceled. You know what I mean? Dumb things. Like people would start to say, and this is literally what would happen. The thought was if that person then fell or died or got hurt, then whatever favor they had would be released up into the atmosphere and I might be able to get it. And this is what envy would do. It just kept looking at other people. And the phrase that most people would say is, it's not fair. It's not fair that she has that. It's not fair that they're married. It's not fair that they get to go on vacations. It's not fair. But oftentimes what they would do is they would miss out on one word. It's not fair, God. It's not fair, God. Why'd you give to them? They don't deserve it. It's not fair. And it's hard to be rich towards God when you actually are angry at him because you can't celebrate somebody else's blessings because your whole perspective is functioning off a theory of limited good. Remember when you were a kid and you went to, to breakfast and, you, and the first time you, you went to breakfast and then the waitress came up. She's like, hey, young man. What would you like to drink? And you were like, orange juice. I was like, orange juice. And she's like, okay. And what do they bring you? They don't bring you a big cup of orange juice. They bring you the tiniest little thing of orange juice ever. Costs $9.99. <laughs> and so you're like drinking it just a little bit, little bit, little bit. And then you finish it. And you're, and you're like, can I get free refills? And she's like, no, there's no free refills on that orange juice. And dad was like, nah, not doing that, man. You should learn your lesson. You got to siphon that. And you just drink it, spit it back in. Drink it again, spit it back in. Drink it, spit, drink it, spit. Got to make it through all the maple syrup and the pancakes to look like Mickey Mouse, sort of. You know what I mean? Like, and so, so you live this whole life like no free refills. And this is how many of us think about grace and God's blessing and generosity. So we're like, there's only so much good to go around. And like we are functioning believers in so many ways, but what actually drives us is scarcity and envy. Get around that. That's what I want to follow. No, I don't. 
And I, and I think for many of us, man, this is threatening our ability to be rich towards God, to embody that cruciform life. Number three, you've got these threats, greed and envy. Number three is comparison, comparison. And this is when your head's on a swivel and you're just looking, oh, what's she have? What's he have? What do they have? Why do they have that? See, envy's asking, it's not fair, God. Greed's like, I desire it. I deserve it. I demand it. I don't care what I got to step on. But comparison's sneaky. It's sneaky, especially for you students. You're going to walk in and you're going to be walking and you're going to see, you're going to see someone coming in with a nice pair of sneakers and you're going to be like, man, why do they have that? Why do they have that? I wish I had those. You're going to watch how someone walks in and has a, has a certain look or vibe or certain people look. You're smart enough to see that, the way that people look. And all of a sudden, you, you can start to compare yourself and go, man, maybe if I had that, if I dressed like that, if I looked like that, if I drove like that, if my parents actually did that, then maybe, maybe people might look at me. And in that way, all of a sudden, it's like you're comparing and not seeing what you already have. I'll tell you what, man, this gets dangerous. And social media, man, this is, that's why it's so, I'm not saying it's, it's evil, but man, it is dangerous. It's dangerous because when we were kids, remember this, remember when we were kids and we didn't get invited somewhere? We didn't know what other kids were doing. We just stuck at home watching cops with our parents, right? What else are we going to do? Maybe have Friday night pizza hut, watch some TV with our parents. We did not know. Now there's a thing called Snapchat. And now you know what your friends are doing. And you're like, oh, y'all didn't call me. Oh, I see how it is. I ain't calling you. You know, and, and you have now this feeling of, man, I'm feeling left out. And that's cognitive dissonance. Oh, man. And, and you're watching what this is doing to students. I'm telling you, friends, it's hard to be rich towards God when greed and envy and comparison are holding our lives in check. And this is why even 2,000 years ago, the poets and the prophets and the preachers, man, they, they, they had words about this. They wanted us to understand how to actually live. And Paul tells his young spiritual son, Timothy, he just says, hey, you've got to understand there's a better way. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, it says this. Command. He's telling Timothy, this is what you got to speak on. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Real quick. Sometimes it's easy for us to say, oh, the rich, that's just people who make over a certain pay grade. Y'all, every one of us in this room is rich. We... we we, we have so much. And, and sure, we might not have as much as some people, but we have a lot more than a lot of people in the rest of the world. So, so the idea of this passage is command those who have been blessed, who have experienced favor, not to look down on anybody else. Not to, not to be passive aggressive towards anybody else. And here's the thing. Then he says, don't be the kind of person who puts your trust in wealth, but put your hope and trust in God. And this is cognitive dissonance, right? Because the truth is, I say this all the time. I want my hope, I want my trust to be in God. But man, you better be sure I was watching the stock market the last couple months. I mean, you all, Houston, let's just be real. You all are watching the oil prices. And for a couple years ago, it was a little scary. 
And all of a sudden, it creates a sense of dissonance. How do you walk in this world where you're not unaware, you're aware, but your trust and hope isn't in wealth, but it's actually in God that God's got this? And you have to be that kind of person or you will profess with a song that you sing on a Sunday morning, but Monday through Friday or even Saturday, you're living something totally different. And this is then greed and envy and comparison starts to creep in and you struggle to be rich towards God. Look what Paul writes again to Timothy. He says this, verse 18, command them to do good. To be rich in good deeds. Now that word good deeds in Hebrew, obviously this is Greek that the New Testament was written in, but in Hebrew, good deeds was the phrase masavot, or mitzvot, I'm sorry, mitzvot. And mitzvot literally meant sacred deeds. Mitzvot's where we get the word commands and laws. And our job was to be the kind of people who lived these mitzvot's so that we could walk in tune and harmony with God. It continues and says this, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, which means heaven, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And this is the struggle. I mean, don't get me wrong. When I see a Rivian truck in the wild, I stop what I'm doing. I walk up, I look at that thing, zero to 60 in less than three seconds. It's beautiful. There's not that very many on the, on, the, on, the, on the planet that are actually showing up in the real world. I stop. But you know what? That's as cool as it gets. For me in the, in the car, I love it. That ain't saving me. That, that's not going to save me. I can respect it. I can admire it, but I don't always have to acquire it. But here's the crazy piece is you have to be thinking, wow, what are the things that are actually in this present life going to build the firm foundation that's going to help me embody this cruciform life? So I told you the three threats, greed, envy, and comparison. Let's talk about the three essentials. The three essentials to being rich toward God. Number one, generosity. Generosity. Now let me say this. Nobody drifts towards generosity. Nobody just wakes up and goes, crazy thing, I'm really, really generous. I'm just so generous with my money, my time, my talents. Like, I just, I'm just a generous person. Unless you're Michael Scott from The Office, nobody says that, right? <laughs> and, and, and the truth is, like, for us to be generous takes us back to the cross. And the cross is God's way of showcasing generosity to a degree that we've never seen. Or he gave his very best so that we could be right with him. And if we're going to live a cruciform life, our ability is to say in response to what God did for us, how he gave us his very best, how can I model that and embody that even when it disrupts me? It's amazing. Is the second essential to being rich towards God. Number one, generous. But number two, sacrifice. And the crazy thing is when you are generous, it showcases that you had to sacrifice something. You, you, you could have bought something for yourself. You, you could have actually spent time getting lost on Netflix, but you gave that time. You could have done something else than volunteering at church, but you were willing to sacrifice because you actually saw the potential that was at hand. I mean, let's just be honest. Teachers should be paid more money. 
I'm just gonna say that out loud. Not that I even get a chance to write checks, but if I could write a check, I'd write a check to a biology teacher who's teaching to 10th graders, making them care about biology. And I'm like, I don't know why you do this. <laughs> but you actually believe in those kids. And the fact that you continue to, to stand with a whole bunch of kids because you believe in their future when you could be working in business and doing a ton of other things, making a ton more money, but you're willing to sacrifice that to give a kid a better chance, man, that's good news. And every time we see a teacher or we see someone in military or we see a first response, we should be like, man, you are willing to sacrifice. That's a small picture of the gospel. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Now, second, second thing is when I think about sacrifice, every person who sacrifices has to embody a little mantra. This is a mantra I try and teach my kids all the time, and I fail at it constantly. But here's the mantra. You got to make decisions against yourself. Because the decisions I often want are to be rich. The decisions I often want are to be greedy. I desire to deserve it. I demand it. The decision I really want is to spend so much energy being envious towards another. The decision I often want are to compare myself just to where other people are at. I mean, even last night when I'm at this restaurant, I'm eating, and then the, the waiter walks by and goes, you up for dessert? And I was about to say no, and then he says, we got key lime pie. And I was like, done, we're going to do it. <laughs> Don't even have time to ask myself to make a decision against myself. And then I'm eating it halfway, and I know... This body does not need key lime pie, but inside I needed it, right? And we, this is the fight every time. I wasn't willing to sacrifice because I wanted it right there. And this is how many of us live our life. A part of sacrifice that we have to train because nobody drifts towards generosity. Nobody drifts to being a sacrificial person. You have to literally make decisions against yourself to say there's something on the other side that's worth more. It's delayed gratification. And when you can actually see that, there's no reason for Jesus to be like, I'm sitting at the right hand of the Father. I have people worshiping me. I have all of the power on the planet. Oh, you know what I'm going to do? As Philippians 2 says, I'm going to empty myself out and I'm going to walk to this thing called earth that's filled with broken and beautiful people and I'm actually going to die so that people can actually experience and be in right relationship with my, God, with my Father. The sacrifice doesn't make sense unless you have a bigger goal on the other side. And Jesus was like, I want every tongue, tribe, and nation to be in relationship with my Father. Third, generosity, sacrifice, the third essential to being rich toward God is trust. And if you have trust, it is easier to sacrifice. And if you have trust and sacrifice, it will be wildly easier to be generous. But you remove trust from any relationship, and let's just see how that goes. Trust is essential. And when you have that trust that you have put that into God, into your relationship, you actually believe God's got me, God's got us, God's got this. And because God's got me, God's got us, God's got this, then I can sacrifice because I believe in his vision is the best vision. And I can literally be a bridge of faith generously with my time, my talent, my treasure, because I believe God's going somewhere with this. If not, you will be swimming upstream because everything will be whispering, it's yours. It's yours. What do you want? Desire, deserve, demand, be greedy. Be envious. He's holding out on you. Takes you back to Genesis 3. 
just start to look and compare. You should be farther ahead. And you feel the shame of the shoulds. But friends, we have to be the kind of people who can sit back and go, Holy Spirit, what are you wanting to teach me? Are any of you struggling with greed or envy or comparison? Can you imagine if this church were the kind of place that embodied a trust, a sacrifice and generosity that actually looked like the cross? So how do we do it? I have a buddy when I teach in Chicago, he sits in the front row over here. And anytime I get to this moment, he just screams out in the middle of a sermon. He goes, make it plain, doc, make it plain. And what he's literally saying is land the plane, but help me, help me put this and apply it to my life, which I just love. For the last couple months, I've been carrying around this little cross. You can get it for like a buck 99 on Amazon. I've just been keeping it in my pocket. And throughout the day, I've been thinking about all the times I experienced the Gadao Yara. I feel exceedingly displeased just feels wrong for how the way the world is or feels this cognitive dissonance when my beliefs or my values are being challenged or struggling to make decisions against myself and my own personal greed or envy or comparison is taking over. I'm sitting in a meeting and someone's saying something and I don't want to be generous or I don't want to feel discomfort and sacrifice or I don't actually want to give them the benefit of the doubt and trust them. And I'm beginning to learn how to be aware of my swirling within me. And in that moment, you know what I do? Instead of just talking, I take my hand and I put it in my pocket and I wrap my hand around this cross. And in my brain, as I'm trying to listen and focus on this person, I just ask somehow you would teach me through this moment and this situation about what the cruciform life is all about. And I try to wait on the Holy Spirit to give me direction. Where can I grow in trust? Where can I grow in sacrifice? Where can I grow in generosity that would actually embody what this whole thing is all about? I don't know if for some of you, maybe you have a necklace of a cross. Maybe you have a cross that was a grandma's or a grandfather's. Maybe you just got to carry it around. But the more that you wrap your hands around it, the more that you hold on to this, the more that you begin to feel this, you begin to watch how the spirit begins to actually help you live in alignment with it. The communion service, we're gonna go into a song that all is about building our life on this. As we sing this, I want you to ask yourself, is this what I'm building my life on or am I building it on greed and envy in comparison. Here in this room, we're going to sing a different song. It's a song about having us be the kind of people where Christ is magnified in us. And that's what I long for every single one of you is that when you're in the marketplace or you're in school or you're walking through your neighborhood or, or engaging with business leaders or owners in the restaurants, that they would see the generosity. They would feel the sacrifice. They would experience the trust that you'd have and that we would be bridges of faith so that people could experience good news. Amen? Amen. Let me pray and then we will lead into a time of response. God, we come before you and I'm just praying that my friends right here, that we would be the people, the kind of people that would embody the cruciform life. Not shaped by greed, not shaped by anything 
but you, your son, and your spirit. We want to be the kind of people that are rich towards God with our time, our talent, our treasure, with our very life. So help us. Help us in this moment declare our trust, declare our sacrifice, declare our generosity. And God, we pray that through that declaration, you would be more magnified in us and through us for your glory. And all God's people said, amen.